We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Connor, and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Christmas Eve special. Yes, as many of you will be eating, drinking, and having conversations with family and friends over the coming days, what better time to learn the art of emotional intelligence? Yes, in this special episode, we were joined by the best-selling author and psychologist, Dan Goleman. And a fun fact, no other guest in Intelligence Squared history has generated as many YouTube views as Mr. Goleman. His 2013 talk has been viewed over 3.2 million times by all of you, and it's our most viewed video on the Intelligence Squared YouTube channel. He joined us on Intelligence Squared Plus to celebrate the 25th anniversary of his international bestseller, Emotional Intelligence. It's a really fascinating conversation, and it was hosted by Manveen Rana, host of the Stories of Our Times podcast. And if you do enjoy it, you can find a link for Dan's book in the episode description. But now I want to wish you, your friends, family, a very safe and Merry Christmas from everyone here at Intelligence Squared. And we hope this episode comes in handy over the coming days. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared Plus event with Daniel Goldman, the best-selling author and psychologist whose book Emotional Intelligence has sold millions of copies worldwide since its publication in 1995 and has been published in over 40 languages. The 25th anniversary edition of Emotional Intelligence is out now. Great if you're looking for Christmas presents. (laughs) And Daniel Coleman currently co-directs the Consortium for Research on Emotional Intelligence in Organisations at Rutgers University. So we're delighted he can join us. Daniel, welcome. So pleased we we could do this. I I wanted to start by asking you just to explain in, in simplest terms, what is emotional intelligence? Well, first of all, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And emotional intelligence, in short, is being intelligent about emotions. I see it as having four particular parts, each little different from the other, but interplaying. The first is self-awareness, knowing what you feel, why you feel it, how it impacts what you say and what you do. The second is managing emotions. I don't mean squelching them. I just mean keeping the disruptive ones, the upsetting ones, from keeping you uh, from doing what you have to do, focusing on your task and so on. 
and uh, keeping your goals in mind, feeling optimistic instead of uh, being overly burdened by setbacks. Then the third is empathy, tuning into other people, knowing what they're feeling. And people don't tell us in words, they tell us in facial expression, tone of voice. And then finally, putting that all together to manage your relationships, handle relationships effectively, to be able to uh, harmonize, collaborate, be a good team member, be a good leader. These are the active ingredients. So in short, that's what emotional intelligence means to me. And I mean, it's a term which is commonly used now, but it didn't really exist until you first published the book in, in 1995, or hardly. Um, what have you learned since then? How, how has your thinking developed? Sure. Uh, first of all, it's a, actually a misconception that I started the concept. I am not the father of emotional intelligence. I, I saw the term first used in a very obscure journal article written by actually a friend of mine. He was a junior professor at Yale then. Uh, Peter Salovey and his then-graduate student, John Mayer. Today, Peter is the president of Yale University. I think he has a lot of emotional intelligence, helped him along. Uh, In the 25 years since I saw the concept, and by the way, they weren't the first to use the phrase, but nobody had heard of it, really. The 25 years since writing the book, I've really changed my thinking about what the components are of emotional intelligence. In the book, I talk about five parts, but I statistically and and, uh, logically, actually, I combined two. One was motivation, the other emotional self-management. I see motivating ourselves, keeping our eye on the goal, uh, staying energized to get there, which is motivation, as part of how we manage our emotions. Another thing is that I've found... um, through research that are about a dozen competencies, each of which nests within a different one of the four domains. And these competencies distinguish outstanding performers, particularly in the workplace and particularly among leaders. So I outline all that in the new uh, introduction to emotional intelligence to update my thinking. And in terms of emotional intelligence, you know, you, you talk about it being one of the most important factors in people's success, mm. for example. Yeah. Is it something that can be taught? Well, uh, let me speak first to the factors of success, because uh, there's another misconception about emotional intelligence I'd like to clean up all we can. And that is that 80% of success, career success, is due to emotional intelligence. That's a misreading of the book. I talk about how IQ accounts for maybe 14 to 20 percent of career success, and the other 80 percent includes emotional intelligence, but it's things like the connections that you make, the wealth of the family you grew up in, your education, luck, all of those different kinds of variables determine how well we do. And yes, it can be taught. It's learned and learnable. Unlike IQ, by the way, which pretty much is a measure of how quickly your brain can take in and register and act on new information. Uh, Emotional intelligence, on the other hand, things like empathy, uh, how we handle emotions, all of that has a developmental path. So, for example, if you have a five-year-old child, that child probably would do well to learn a little more impulse control. You'll see that by the time that child is eight, he or she is much better at it, and that has to do with the growth of the brain, the emotional and social 
uh, circuits of the brain are the last part of the brain to become anatomically mature, not till the mid-20s. What this means is that there's a fabulous window of opportunity to help our children get it right in the first place. So uh, unlike the rest of us, they won't need remedial work. It's never too late, by the way, to enhance your emotional intelligence, but you've got to want to do it because as an adult... You have to overcome whatever bad habit you learn. For example, the common cold of bad habits, particularly in leadership, in, among physicians, among husbands, for example, too often, and sometimes wives, is interrupting the other person, not listening to what they have to say, which is an indicator of poor empathy. And there's research that suggests that um, people who are in a higher power position in a dyad, as two people are talking, typically interrupt the other person and take over the conversation. So if there's research with physicians. You ask people in a waiting room, how many questions do you have for your doctor? Average four. Ask them when they came out of the session, how many did you ask? One and a half. Why on average is that true? It's because the doctor takes over the conversation and you never get to the other questions. And this happens all too often. So I'm simply using this as an example of something we need to unlearn and then relearn how to be fully present to the person, how to empathize, how to tune in, how to listen and understand what it is they have to say. All of that can be learned in adulthood, but actually I'm a big advocate of teaching this to kids in school. You know, from kindergarten on up till people go to university is a golden opportunity because their brain is developing the circuitry that they'll have through life for those four components, self-awareness, managing emotions, empathy, and getting on with other people very well. So let's help kids get it right. And there are now more than 100 curricula. Another organization that I uh, was a co-founder of that I that will help people who want to find out more about the curricula for kids is the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, C-A-S-E-L dot org. And if you are concerned about kids and you want to see that they get this kind of education too, by the way, in the curricula, it doesn't take too much time from other topics, maybe 15 minutes once or twice a week. Uh, sometimes it's embedded. Yeah. That's they do it, it in very clever ways. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, kids love this. You know why? Because it helps them with what they care about, which is getting on with other kids. That's what's most important in the social life of a child, is having good friendships. And this helps them learn how to do that. Anyway, uh, castle.org is a good place to go. Yes. I thought it was really interesting that you said um, it's not like IQ. You know, you can change it as as you go on. Does everybody yeah. have an equal capacity for emotional intelligence, though? Can everybody well, be, I, learn as much? Well, you know, I, I think of the work of Simon Baron-Cohen, I think is at Oxford University. He studies autism and the spectrum. And what he finds is that although people on that spectrum can be brilliant at understanding systems, they tend to have a deficit which may be brain-based in empathy. Uh, so I would say that if you have a brain-based deficit, uh, of any kind in this domain, it would be harder for you to learn to to uh, remediate that and be as good as everyone else in that particular skill set. One of the big things that's changed since your book came out in 1995 is this has become the year of the global pandemic. 
with that, mm. with the high levels of stress that have come with that and, you know, the difficulties of being very, you know, forced to spend a lot of time with the same few people or homeschooling or working from home. How has the idea of emotional intelligence helped us to cope with all of that? And have your thoughts on it changed well, at all over yes. this period? Well, uh, remember that uh, managing your own inner world is the first part of emotional intelligence. There's our self-awareness and using that awareness to handle our disruptive emotions and stress and anxiety, which are you know, uh, higher than ever because of COVID and working at home and many, many uh, economic worries and so on. The stress is so high. And I think emotional intelligence abilities and learning how to manage stress can help all of us. And in fact, if you'd like, I could share two techniques for doing that oh, right now yes, with please. our audience. <laughs> well, for Give us on the all spot... You can. <laughs> One method that the research shows uh, can help you right away is a controlled breathing method. It really comes from the yoga world, and it involves, uh, here's what you do. You take a deep breath so that your belly expands. That's a really deep breath. Hold it as long as is comfortable. And then exhale very slowly through your mouth. And if you do this six to nine times, the research shows it shifts your physiology from the anxious modes, flight or flight response, as we call it, technically sympathetic nervous system arousal. It shifts it from that, from being uh, stressed out, if you will, to being relaxed. That's the parasympathetic nervous system mode or the relaxation response, if you will. But it calms the body down. And with that calm, you can be more clear about what's going on. So that's something I've been sharing this with frontline medical workers, for example, because it's a quick and easy way to make the shift if you need it right now on the spot. But there's something else you can do. And this uh, strengthens the neuronal circuitry in the brain that will make our upsets less common. We get triggered less often. If we do get upset, we get less upset than we would formerly. And we recover more quickly. The definition of resilience is the time it takes you to, to go from the peak of your upset to back to your relaxed baseline. So the method is a breath meditation. It's sometimes called mindfulness of breathing. It's really a focusing or concentration exercise. In the UK, it's taught at Action for Happiness, an organization that I have worked with a bit. And it, 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 the instructions are really simple. It goes like this. If you're home and you feel comfortable, sit up straight, not tense, relaxed, but spine straight. If you feel fine about closing your eyes, that can help. And just bring your awareness, your attention to your breath. Don't try to control your breath. Just let it be at its normal pace. But notice the full in-breath and the full out-breath. And then a pause, and the next in-breath, the next out-breath. And just keep your attention on your breath. When your mind wanders off somewhere and you notice it wandered, just bring it back to the breath and start again with the next breath. Breathing in, breathing out, and the next breath. Breathing in, breathing out. 
and now you can open your eyes. That's a very quick introduction to a method that people typically will do maybe five or ten minutes a day in the morning or longer if they can. It's There's a dose-response relationship. The more you do, the better the benefit. But some, this is a really interesting study. If you are really focused on a task that you've got to get done today, your concentration while you're focused will be very high. And then, on average, people after a few minutes decide, oh, I better check that text, or what about Facebook? And they go online. This, this is called multitasking. And then maybe, on average, 20 minutes later, you go back to that really important thing, and your attention is much, much lower. Your focus is destroyed. Unless you've done 10 minutes of that breathing exercise, then your attention still is very high. It doesn't take you that long to ramp up again. So that's one of the benefits, the many benefits. But generally, the research shows, um, and I just did a book, by the way, it's called Science of Meditation in the UK, that looks at all the best studies of these methods, meditation methods. It shows that the payoff from what I just went through on the breath, focusing on the breath, is people become more calm, they're upset less often, they recover more quickly, and they're more focused. They're better able to be calm and clear about what they do. It's an attentional exercise. In fact, it directly reinforces and strengthens the connection of the neurons for concentration. Remember I said, when your mind wanders, bring it back? That's like when you go to the gym with a weight, and every time you lift the weight, that muscle becomes a little bit stronger. Same thing with bringing your mind back. Every time you do that, the uh, brain circuitry for focus becomes that much more connected. And research shows that people who've done this for a long time, maybe hundreds or thousands of hours over their lifetime, have much, much stronger circuitry connections in that brain area. So there's a, a real payoff at the brain level, just as when you go to the gym and work out, there's a payoff biologically. And does that level of focus, is that what helps to improve your emotional intelligence? How is it that the meditation uh, and the breathing would, actually sort of enhances that? Yes. Uh, so that improves the capacity for managing emotions because managing emotions is really about handling your disruptive, your disturbing emotions, your anger, your anxiety, your fear. Uh, you don't want to uh, interfere at all with your passions, your exuberance, your enthusiasm. You want to boost that. So self-management means both uh, enhancing the positive emotions and then handling better the ones that keep you off track. And yes, uh, so that's a, an attribute of emotional intelligence, and that exercise I just shared is a way to strengthen it. Yeah. I mean, those, those are great tips for how to, to manage your emotions through this period. Has this period changed? I mean, we, we, you know, we've all sort of been stuck at home and, and you know, quarantining. Mm. And it's changed social interaction so much. You know, we're having to do it as we are now via Zoom sure. more and more. Yes. How, how has that altered emotional intelligence? Or has it cha- changed its importance in, for example, the workplace? Or, or do you have to just yeah. think differently about it? Well, I think it challenges our emotional intelligence, particularly empathy and relationship skills, because the, the brain, the social brain, was designed for face-to-face interaction. Uh, and when we're with someone in person, remember those days when we could do that with other people? Dim and distant uh, memory. With someone, <laughs> yeah, uh, you pick up so many instantaneously. You pick up 
social cues. It's automatic. It's unconscious. And it tells you how pers- that person you're with reacted to what you just did or said and what to do or say next to be effective. We don't have that immediate in-person feedback. We can't reach out and touch someone. We can't pick up the fleeting emotional cues that tell us how they feel. Uh, I remember uh, before the whole pandemic, I was asked to come in and talk to a group at a, a major company, I can't name it, uh, the division that designed their own uh, web uh, meeting software because they were using it and they found that people were sneaking looks at their iPhone and they were, were not paying attention to the, the meeting. You know, it's an endemic problem with being online. So what it means for emotional intelligence is we have to draw on the relationship capacities, particularly empathy. We have to pay more attention to the other person. And I, I've been telling uh, some audiences, business people, particularly leaders, if you want to maintain a strong relationship with the people you work with, with your teammates or with the people you're leading, uh, you might need a side channel of communication. You might want to reach out to the person maybe by phone. Phone carries a rich load of emotional messaging about the person, not about the job, not about our task together, but how are you doing? just to keep the relationship strong. So I think it's a very important question these days. Yes, I think we need to be more intentional uh, about strengthening relationship online in in this world, which hopefully will end in the next several months. (laughs) Yes. I mean, will will we be very different people by then? And, you know, your book was so good at changing the way people think about emotional intelligence and it teaches so many tips about how to think about it do those just as as you sort of said you know practice improves them are we all going to be desperately out of practice by the time this is over will will emotional intelligence across the board across the population have taken a bit of a step back (laughs) Uh, it's a great question we don't know i'm really more worried about kids children because they're not going to school and so much of what they learn and what shapes the emotional and social circuitry is from in-person interaction. It's not just your parents and your friends at home or family at home. It's the teacher and other kids. Uh, other children are very important teachers to each other of how to be a good human being, how to be emotionally intelligent, what works, what doesn't work. And so we have this period where there's a timeout for children everywhere who are maybe going to school online or they can't be with their friends. Uh, And we're waiting to see if there's a long-term deficit. Actually, I'm a little optimistic. I'll tell you why. Because the brain is very good at remedial education. So I think that if kids have a gap in what they would have learned, I I suspect they'll make it up very quickly. I'm hoping so, anyway. Uh, And for adults, I don't know. We'll see. In the section of the book on relationships... You, you, again, it's sort of something people in lockdown will be thinking about a lot right now. But in, in that section, you write about how the innate differences in the ways that men and women handle their emotions. Oh, yeah. You, know, you, you talk about, in general, women being better at reading uh, than men at reading other people's emotions and what they're, they're thinking. Mm. And they tend to be sort of, they value good communication in marriage more than men do uh, in, in the book. Do you mm. still think that? Do you still think that difference exists? Well, uh, actually, since that book came out, there are several uh, assessments of emotional intelligence that show that if you compare genders, women on average are a little higher in emotional intelligence than men. On the other hand, 
I, and I think it is because we talk to girls about relationships. Women nurture empathy and relationships naturally. And I think it pays off in terms of uh, that part of emotional intelligence. On the other hand, some research suggests that men on average are better than women on average at handling negative emotions and recovering from negative emotions. So I think there's, uh, you know, there's a profile of strengths and limits that each of us has across the 12 competencies, the four domains of emotional intelligence. Uh, and um, if you th- look at behavioral differences between genders, you're looking at two largely overlapping bell curves. What that means is that a given man could be as good as any woman at woman at, at empathy or relationship skills, or a given woman could be uh, as adept as any man at managing disruptive emotions. It's the averages that we're looking at. And very interestingly, if you look at the data from top 10% performers, this was data for colleague of mine, Ruth Malloy, um, she, she had companies nominate their star performers, both men and women, and found there was no gender difference in the top 10%, that uh, the women are as good at handling disruptive emotions as any of the men, and the men as good at empathy as any of the women. Very interesting data. Do you feel like that's changed since 1995? Is this people becoming more aware of emotional intelligence? or? Well, uh, here's the problem. Learning about emotional intelligence does not mean you will be good at emotional intelligence. <laughs> so the concept, you know, it's, it's slang EQ is everywhere around the world. People know what it means. It doesn't mean they've gotten any better at it. Though. <laughs> so I don't really have any data on whether we've improved. I, I wanted to ask, Daniel, you've, you've done a lot of work recently on sort of even more building on, on what you've done before on leadership and emotional intelligence. Mm. Talk me through just the importance of that to any, you know, if you're, if you're the leader of any kind of team or organization, mm, how mm. key is emotional intelligence in your sort of skill set? Some years ago, I wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review called What Makes a Leader, which argues that emotional intelligence are the active ingredients in effective leadership. That became their most requested reprint in the history of the journal. People really resonated with that idea. I think it articulated something that people had known all along, which is that uh, leadership is a relationship skill. You know, you need your tech skills, you need a certain level of intelligence to get a given job and handle its cognitive complexity, whether it's accounting or business executive or medicine, doesn't matter. You need a higher than average IQ. But once you get in that role, your IQ is not going to determine whether you emerge as a leader, as outstanding, as a wonderful teammate. It's your emotional intelligence. And there's lots of data now that shows this is the case. I just gave a talk yesterday about um, building an emotionally intelligent organization, which starts with leaders who model emotional intelligence and then having it ripple down through the the ranks. And so uh, if you think about it, leadership means being able to lead yourself first, to stay focused on your goals, to stay optimistic despite setbacks, to uh, handle your upset. If anybody really is in a leadership position or any position and has what I call an emotional hijack where they get really angry or you know, get super rude or arrogant, it's always bad for business because people around them get affected 
affected negatively. Then there's the empathy and relationship aspect, which is the most obvious part of leadership. You want to be able to tune into the people you're leading. Know what, do, what are their concerns? What do they care about? Uh, and then you want to be able to influence and inspire, motivate, keep people enthusiastic, handle uh, conflicts well, be a good team player. All of those are emotional intelligence skills. So I would say that the art of leadership, you know, getting work done well through other people really depends on emotional intelligence. There are so many other questions I'd love to ask you, but uh, I've, I've got to turn to the audience ones because they're flooding in. So firstly, we've, we've got a question which I imagine a lot of people who are listening will want to know the answer to. And that's just that if you have a child who is you know, around 12, the question asks, whose parents divorce and the child goes to live with one or the other parent, is their emotional intelligence damaged? I would say that... What's important is that a child feel loved by both parents, even in that situation, uh, because that gives the child a sense of psychological safety, as the uh, British psychoanalyst uh, John Bowlby called it, a secure base, which means they'll have healthy attachments uh, as adults. And uh, their emotional intelligence may not be changed by that situation, by the way. I think this gets to something even more basic, which is a child's sense of well-being that underlies it. Somebody else asks, surely one of the effects of EQ has been the widespread surveillance of individual behaviour. This is intriguing. For example, employers now monitor employees for their behaviour and, and well-being or their capacity to collaborate with others or take risks in a way that they didn't used to before. Isn't this culture of surveillance a negative consequence of, of this sort of you know, the popularity of emotional intelligence as an idea now? Yeah, yeah actually I find it rather horrifying really? that emotional intelligence is that way, yeah, uh, because um, that's really not... I, I think that's a misunderstanding of the concept because... Uh, it's okay to assess people for emotional intelligence if you're going to help them learn how to get better at it, not if you're going to condemn them for a limitation, judge them harshly, uh, surveil in any negative sense of the word. Uh, I see it as a developmental model, a model for helping people get better and effective leadership, uh, effective um, it doesn't look at people and dismiss them for where their emotional intelligence limitations are now, I think that's a horrid mistake. Rather, it says, oh, well, you need to get better at X, Y, or Z. Part of it, here's how we will help you do that. And the better companies, the better organizations, and the better leaders, from my point of view, are the ones who help people keep developing because we can strengthen emotional intelligence wherever we need to at any point in life. So rather than just surveilling and dismissing someone uh, for how they are now, you know, a photograph of their skill set, the smarter way to use the concept is to see this as a baseline from which the person can then grow and develop further strengths. Does that lead to incredibly awkward courses where you're trying to encourage employees to, to improve their EQ? Well, this again has to do with the skills of the leader because how do you present that information? I talk to coaches a lot and coaches do want to assess this range of the people they're coaching, but 
they give the information to them very carefully so that the person doesn't feel judged, but rather they see it as news to use, uh, something that they can build on and get better at. So I think that the problem may have to do with how that information gets introduced to the person or gets used in the administrative system. That's got to be emotionally intelligent too. <laughs> now we've got a great question yeah. from um, Hermione, who's 16 in the UK, who asks, does Donald Trump have emotional intelligence? So remember, emotional intelligence is not one thing. It's not like IQ, you get a single score. Emotional intelligence is... Uh, you know, like when you go to a physical, you, what are your triglycerides and what's your cl- good cholesterol level and bad? You get a range of assessments. I'd recommend for people in the business world using the emotional and social competence inventory. It's a 360 that assesses all 12 of the emotional intelligence abilities. So back to the question, I think that Donald Trump may be good at particular part of emotional intelligence, which is cognitive and emotional empathy. He knows how to play his followers' emotions. What he lacks is the third part of empathy, which is empathic concern, which means you care about the person. I truly do not think he cares what happens to people. His response to COVID certainly confirms that. So anyone can be good at one or another ability within the skill set, but I think you need a balance of all of them to be really emotionally intelligent. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Somebody else has asked, what damage does social media and our phones do to our emotion, emotional intelligence? And how do we counter that? Do you have any advice? Well, I think that uh, media like uh, I, you know, iPhones or contacting people online rather than in person or Facebook rather than in person. Uh, the, the key phrase here is rather than in person because to the extent uh, weak connections through media take over our lives and replace our time with friends, family, people we really love and care about, it may do damage. Otherwise, Uh, If you keep your core relationships strong, uh, I think that extending your reach of people you keep track of and stay in touch with is fine. It needn't damage emotional intelligence. Somebody else has asked, when it is safe to go back, to go out and go back to offices again, what would you recommend for organisations as a way to rebuild relationships and emotional intelligence? You know, is it fine for organisations and companies to carry on mainly working from home and online? What would you recommend? Uh, I, I think it remains to be seen. My guess is this. If you're working well from home, your organisation may want you to come in only occasionally and may want you to come in particularly for collaboration and relationship building. Uh, I worked for many years at the New York Times. That's the other Times, the American Times. And um, I worked at home uh, 
for the most part, but I came in every two weeks for meetings and to keep my relationship with my editors and my uh, mates in, in the uh, science desk where I worked strong. Uh, I think that was important too. So I think there'll be a combination, but many companies and many organizations have discovered that they don't really need all those buildings, that that's a holdover from the last century or the century before, that we can do so much now uh, at a distance and to the extent that people are productive and some data suggests they might be more productive in some positions, that may just uh, stay the way it is. But I think companies, organizations will also have to take advantage of the fact that once again in the future we can get together uh, and be with each other. And I think that will be important to once again renew and strengthen relationships. And depending on the business, it may be important for getting the work done. But what we've seen is that for many, many companies, many organizations, in-person is not essential. So I think that uh, the in-person may be more about emotional intelligence and strengthening emotional intelligence among workmates. We'll see. Um, Somebody else asks, what is the place of psychotherapy in developing emotional intelligence? And is some types of psychotherapy better than others? Uh, I, I personally am an advocate of mindfulness in combination with cognitive therapy. If you're a therapist, that's a little inside information. I won't judge other therapies. Um, some people have loved a psychodynamic therapy or gestalt therapy. Uh, I think it's very individual. I think it may actually have more to do with your working alliance with that particular therapist, uh, if it's helpful or not. My wife, I have to say, in full disclosure, is <laughs> was trained in cognitive therapy and mind. She was the first to put mindfulness together with cognitive therapy in her book, Emotional Alchemy, which I recommend if you're a therapist. (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, I think that psychotherapy goes more deeply than emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence has to do with how we are in managing our emotions, and here's where psychotherapy can help us more than emotional intelligence development, per se, and also in our relationships. So I think uh, if you're up for it, psychotherapy gives you a deeper dive into your emotional patterns than emotional intelligence. And I can't recommend it in any particular case. It's, it's an individual choice. But if you have the wherewithal and if you feel you have the need, if there's some, for example, if your relationships end in the same disastrous way over and over and over again, you might want to look at that in psychotherapy. Uh, Somebody else asks, how do you feel AI will impact emotional intelligence in the medical environment? Well, this speaks to um, emotional intelligence going into the future. And by the way, I'd like to say my thinking is evolving. I'll get back to that in a moment. AI is wonderful at detecting patterns, at making instantaneous decisions. It may be a great help in the medical profession in terms of diagnostic accuracy. Uh, And AI, I think, will take over more and more functions within medicine. But I think it will be a long while, if ever, before AI can model well the skill set of emotional intelligence. And frankly, while I don't mind my physician using AI, if I were sick in bed, I'd rather have a person than a robot at my bedside. 
And then this gets to how my own thinking on emotional intelligence, including AI and emotional intelligence, is unfolding. For those of you who want to follow my thinking as it evolves, I invite you to subscribe to my uh, LinkedIn newsletter. There's no fee for that. You just sign up. And uh, if you, I, I also I'm trying to get a podcast going because I love sharing range. my new thinking. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, and I'm going to embed that in the newsletter. And we have uh, the crew that's doing that has started a Kickstarter campaign. If you want to help us out, uh, go to Kickstarter. First person plural. It's about us. It's about we and uh, emotional intelligence and beyond. And this will allow me to share my current thinking right away instead of taking the two years to write a book <laughs> uh, and get it out. So that's, that's where that's I'm going. That's probably the future, isn't yeah. it? Immediate publishing. Yeah. And, and just in terms of that, sort of in this future uh, uh, where AI is everywhere, does that actually make emotional intelligence even more key? Is that, does that become one of your key skills as a person? Uh, many people think so. I think it remains to be seen. But one of the uh, going theories these days is that AI is great for cognitive abilities, for technical skills. That's what it was invented for, for modeling the IQ part of the brain. It was not designed for modeling how people handle their own emotions or handle their relationships. And it's, that is much more complex and I think uh, it, I don't think that AI will be very good at that very soon, if ever. Um, so, uh, yeah, just to just to get back to your question, yes, I agree that the emotional intelligence part of your skill set as a team player, as a leader, as a healer, as whatever you may be doing, that's person to person. I think that, for the time being, and maybe for a long time, is quite safe from AI. Thank God for that. Peter Alfandry writes saying, thank you, as, as a great influencer. Um, he agrees that EQ can be taught, and his own speciality is cultural intelligence for business, a big part of which is self-awareness, you know, for example, how one's own culture is perceived by others, mm-hmm. and also how we build cross-cultural mm-hmm. relationships. Sure. And his question is, whether have you considered whether there's a relationship between EQ and cultural intelligence, and whether the two fields should be should be linked? Well, I think there's an orthogonal relationship. I don't think they map 100% on each other, but there's very strong evidence, even data, showing that empathy is crucial for cultural intelligence. Uh, people, for example, who are posted overseas in a culture different than their own, pick up the nonverbal cues and norms of the new culture much more quickly if they excel at empathy. Uh, if you're tuned out, if you're oblivious to how people are reacting, you know, when you do something which is a great, uh, you know, guffaw and, uh, you know, a great mistake in another culture, and you don't notice that people are, like, snickering. I remember I was once in Japan in an Indian restaurant in Japan. The Japanese are wonderful at it, imitating other cultures. So it was a fabulous Indian restaurant, but the food was very spicy. My nose was running, and I blew my nose. All of a sudden, the entire restaurant became quiet because you don't do that in public in Japan, apparently. That's what I learned in that moment. Uh, so that's an example of picking up a cue from another culture. And uh, yes, back to cultural intelligence, I think that particularly cognitive empathy, is very important. 
uh, for mastering the norms of a, a different culture. Somebody else asks, is there a good side of anger? Can collective anger against social issues help to solve them? Absolutely. Yes, I, I think anger, you know, every emotion has its place and has its purpose. Anger seems to have evolved uh, to energize us and focus us when there's an obstacle to some goal, like justice. So for social injustice, anger is a good start, but don't stop there. I really like what the Dalai Lama says. He says anger can be constructive. Ordinarily, anger is destructive because we act wildly. We don't think about the consequences of what we do when we're in the throes of uh, you know, or ordinary anger. He says use the energy of anger. Use the focus of anger. Use the persistence of anger. But put aside the hostility and the rage. See what your goal is and work harder to get there because of your anger. But do it in an effective way. Do you have any advice for how to channel your anger to, to, to do that? Well, I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of self-management to do that. But uh, when you are angry, you can ask yourself, what, you know, first of all, recognize your state and then ask yourself, is what I'm doing really helping me toward the goal? Uh, and uh, all too often when we're in the throes of anger, we act or speak in ways that don't really help us. And that's when you need to use some self-management abilities to say, okay, I'm going to keep the energy, I'm going to keep the focus, this is important, but I'm going to try to be more effective in what I say and do. Somebody else has asked, we, we talked about Donald Trump earlier, is there a specific real-world leader who you admire as having remarkably and effective emotional intelligence? Well, I would. Uh, I mentioned the Dalai Lama. I think, you know, he's a paragon in a way, certainly. He has self-mastery, uh, manages his emotions. Well, I've gotten to know him a bit over the years. Uh, wonderful, amazing at empathy and uh, relationships, yeah. But I would say uh, I admire the current Prime Minister of New Zealand, I think she's managed crises very, very well. I don't really follow politics. I hope Joe Biden is emotionally intelligent. I would say that uh, Donald Trump had his deficits and limits, and I'm happy to see him go, personally. Uh, and I think I'll leave it there. <laughs> Always safer. You, you've talked quite a bit about the role of trying to trying to build emotional intelligence at a young age. And somebody's written in asking... Being a parent is probably the most important job most of us take on. How important do you consider raising awareness amongst secondary school students, the key emotional needs of a, of a child to, to feel wanted and valued and safe? How important is that? Oh, yeah, very important. I, I see uh, emotional intelligence education in this domain as crucial throughout the school years. Uh, in the teen years... I would say that it's, oh, by the way, it's very important that teachers get some training in this and model it because how a teacher handles a given student is a lesson learned by 30 or 40 other students in the classroom at that moment. And uh, teenagers, just uh, as with younger students, need to feel valued, need to feel respected, need to feel cared about. Uh, this this is very positive. The data, by the way, on what's called social-emotional learning, 
This was a meta-analysis of, that involved more than 270,000 students, some of whom had the program, some of whom did not. It showed that pro-social behavior, like feeling someone cares about me at school, so I don't cut class, I pay attention, uh, goes up 10%. Anti-social behavior, bullying, violence, misbehaving in class goes down by 10%. Academic achievement goes up by 11% because students aren't caught up in the small melodramas, particularly the teen years. They had that party and they didn't invite me. Why? I thought she was my friend. You know, that's a huge emotional crisis for a teenager. And emotional intelligence, social-emotional learning helps kids helps teenagers navigate those crises well. And so I think it's as crucial in the teen years as it is in the early years and elementary school years. Absolutely. We, we've heard a few questions about uh, about childhood experiences, and, and somebody else has asked, do, is, do you know of any evidence that suggests teaching children and young people in the outdoors, so, you know, sort of more outdoor skills, nature conservation, adventure sports, activities... Does it improve their emotional intelligence? Uh, probably. I don't know of any data. I like it's an appealing idea. And also, I think you get all, another benefit, which is that children understand the importance of nature. Uh, because I think in the coming decades, it's going to get grimmer and grimmer from an environmental point of view for today's children and that um, we need to help them with a systems understanding of how, for example, commerce and the economy uh, interact with the environment. Every time the environment is damaged, pretty much someone's making money somewhere. And we need to be more transparent about that. We, For example, we don't know the embodied ecological footprint of the car we buy, the automobiles we drive, the clothes we buy. Uh, everything we use, if at the point of purchase that were known, then we could make better decisions that would make companies chasing market share do the right thing. Uh, and by the way, the technology for that exists. It's called life cycle assessment. Now it's being used uh, by companies in a proprietary way. They do not share the data openly. But the data can be gotten. And what I mean by the data is how the life cycle of a given product impacts the eight global systems that support life on the planet. Carbon, global warming being one of eight. Uh, So we have a huge shared blind spot about how our daily lives and the things we buy and use impact the environment. I think coming generations need to know that information. We need transparency there in order to get things right if we can in time, and I hope we can. Staying with um, with children and, and how you help to shape them and, and and influence them to be sort of more emotionally intelligent, um, somebody asks, does boarding school knock your, your ability to be emotionally intelligent by forcing children to follow rules and doctrines rather than enabling them to tune into their feelings? I suppose. I don't know enough about the boarding school system, (laughs) which I know is very common in the UK. Well, (laughs) Uh, I know you can have an excellent education (laughs) on the the academic side. I'm not sure what it does to your emotional intelligence, but from what you say, I'm a bit worried. (laughs) Hopefully that that questioner who remains anonymous will, um, (laughs) will know what to make of that. 
Somebody else asks, how do you know if you don't have enough emotional intelligence? This is such a key question for everyone listening, I imagine. <laughs> is it likely that people who most need emotional intelligence are precisely the people who least realise it? Ah. Uh, well, let me answer that last one, part of the question first. The, the data I'm familiar with shows that people who have a gap between how other people see them and how they see themselves, the bigger that gap is, the poorer their self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And uh, of the 12 emotional intelligence competencies that we find make people high performers, low self-awareness predicts you'll have maybe strengths in one, most two. High self-awareness uh, predicts you'll have strengths in 10 of 12. So it matters enormously uh, for emotional intelligence. And I think that, uh, remember, Emotional intelligence is not one thing. It's not a single score. It's a profile of strengths and limits. And the better your self-awareness, uh, the better that profile can become. So I think there's a strong relationship. Are there particular things, though, that we should look out for that, is, that are sort of signs of our emotional intelligence not being what it should be? You know, are, oh. are, are there behaviors yeah. well, around you that you can detect or, or that you should, should, should ring alarm bells? Yeah. I mean, two of them are, are pretty obvious. One is if you find yourself in the throes of upsetting emotions, anger, anxiety, panic, much of the time, that suggests that you could do better at emotional management. If you find yourself having problems repeatedly in relationships, uh, that suggests that you could do better at the relationship management skills. If people tell you that you're not listening to me. You don't get me. You don't understand me. That means I don't feel uh, that you're empathizing with them. Uh, and if you don't know if you have any of these problems, it suggests you might do better at self-awareness. You know, Robert Burns, the Scottish poet, said, uh, Oh, that the gods the gift could give us to see ourselves as others see us. And the more your own sense of yourself fits with what you hear from other people, uh, the better your self-awareness. We've got another question. It just asks, and this is quite key, I suppose, what was the most surprising fact about emotional intelligence that you've learned? What was the thing that surprised you most on this um, more than 25-year journey? Hmm, that's an interesting question. Very interesting question. I think what surprised me most from the time I wrote the book till now uh, is the enthusiasm of the business sector for emotional intelligence. When I wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, I had a little chapter, Managing with Heart, about business. Uh, and then I started getting invitations from companies all over the world to come and talk to them. And I was told by someone, I was given some advice, you know, you can't use the word emotion in a business setting. That was 25 <laughs> years ago. And now emotional intelligence, uh, in large part, I think, thanks to the Harvard Business Review, getting behind the concept, emotional intelligence is pretty much a given for leadership, particularly in a business setting. And that was a real surprise to me. Has it been quite satisfying watching that unfold? Well, you know, I, I see that um, training and development in an organization is basically adult education. It's social-emotional learning for grown-ups. Uh, so I'm very pleased with that, yes. 
But it's suddenly so pervasive across the business world that it's not just a leadership skill or, or a skill in, in employees that people look for. It's almost as if companies are trying to be more emotionally intelligent, you know, and sort of understand what customers might not like or, or to sort of find better environmental policies. I mean, it does seem to be sort of um, infiltrating every part of the business world now. Well, I think it's because of a very strong data which suggests that emotional intelligence just internally with your own employees, with the people in your organization. It means people are more committed. Uh, they're better, uh, they're higher performers. Uh, fewer people leave your company. You know, there's a huge uh, co economic cost to people quitting because you have to find someone new and train them and get them up to speed. And so from an internal point of view, it's very smart for a company to enhance the climate, the overall emotion, feeling of emotional intelligence. And then there's your clients or your customers. You want to absolutely tune into them. If you're tuned out, you lose market share. It's very straightforward. So at the organizational level, uh, emotional intelligence matters greatly. Uh, and in fact, that's um, when, I, when I said, you know, on, on my hopefully on my podcast, that Kickstarter campaign or in the newsletter, I'll be sharing more of my current thinking. And right now, that's pretty cutting edge. I'm right now writing an article for the Harvard Business Review on organizational emotional intelligence. Well, I'm really sorry that we've run out of time because oh. we could have gone on. But um, thank you so much, Daniel. It's been such a fascinating hour. And thank you to all of the audience and especially those who sent in questions. And thank you very much to Intelligence Squared who've hosted this event. Yes. Um, and remember, you can get a discounted copy of Dan's book in the Books tab on the right-hand side of your window uh, or on the Intelligence Squared website. But I'll, I'll hand back to Hannah. Thank you.